0: Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters news.
1: There was one Russian professor who it very well to me, he said, like, uh, if Stalin was 75 percent violence and 25 percent propaganda, Putin is 75 percent propaganda and 25 percent violence.
2: Hi, War College producer Bethel Habte here. The end of the year has our team pretty busy, so we're rerunning an episode we think you'll enjoy. A few months ago, Jason and Matt talked to author and former Russian TV producer Peter Pomerantsev. And if you thought Americans were plagued with fake news during the 2016 election, wait till you hear how it works all year round in Putin's Russia.
3: You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Jason Fields and Matthew Galt.
0: Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew
3: Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring.
0: Today, we're speaking with Peter Pomerantsev, A journalist and former Russian TV producer. His book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which by the way is a fantastic title, explores the Kremlin's weaponization of information. So thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me. So Peter, I want to open with a a quote from your book and then a question. So you say that TV is the only force that can unify and rule and bind this country, referring to Russia. It's the central mechanism of a new type of authoritarianism, one far subtler than the 20th century strains. Can you explain to us what this new type of authoritarianism is, and how is it more subtle than its predecessors?
1: Sure. I mean, the big difference uh, between—well, there's two or three big differences between contemporary authoritarianisms. And it's not just Russia. I mean, there's several several, uh, ones we could focus on there was one russian professor who put very well to me he said like uh, if stalin was 75% violence and 25% propaganda putin is 75% propaganda and 25% violence you know in, in a world of where there's just so many more information mechanisms new authoritarians can, can use them to a much more sophisticated degree. I mean, the way it was more sophisticated, and it is shifting now, was that um, if the Soviets would basically suppress any kind of dissent uh, and try to hammer home sort of one big message, Putin's tibiocracy was much more, uh, was much more cunning. Um, it would allow sort of uh, pockets of freedom. It would allow liberals to exist. Uh, but then it would frame and manipulate them in a certain way uh, to make them, at the end of the day, strengthen Putin and the Kremlin. I mean, it's sort of in, a, in a world where there are so many media resources, you can't censor everything, you can't suppress everything, but you can be subtle and sort of play it. I mean, so I'll give you a few examples. So you do have talk shows in Russia. I mean, if you sort of debating shows, political debating shows, they're actually very, very good. Um, But they're centrally scripted. So there's a sort of fake left-wing party, which is created in the Kremlin and run by the Kremlin. And there's a fake right-wing party, which is created and run by the Kremlin. And they kind of debate with each other. Both of them are so absurd, they make Putin look sensible by contrast. One of the institutions I worked for in Russia was something called Snob Media, uh, which was run by... Created by Rush- Russia's richest man, and it was meant to be like a the Russian version of the New Yorker. Plus, you know, there's going to be a TV channel, which never materialised, but there was sort of a publishing house, and there was a, a website, um, a sort of a sort of a fa- an elite Facebook, sort of a closed Facebook. Um, and anyway, so it was it was um, it was dedicated to creating a new type of Russian, what we called global Russians, and you could t- tell everyone how awful Putin was. Uh, Mashagessen, you know the great Mashagessen. You know, I'm sure you know was one of the editors. You know it was it was it was you know uh, uh, an arc, a uh, Noah's arc of liberalism in many ways. But at the same time, we were all really aware when we worked there that my God, you know this is being funded by Russia's richest man. There's no way he couldn't have done this without the Kremlin's kind of you know permission. Um, and that was kind of the point. So I mean the point was to. Give liberals a place to breathe and and sort of bend their frustrations, but at the same time, you know, it was called snob. Uh, it was funded by Russia's richest man. The Kremlin could easily go look at these liberals, look at their global Russianness, look at the lifestyle they promote. I mean, the, their politics liberal, and their lifestyle they promote is sort of holidays in Europe, and which is inaccessible to you know to the vast majority of Russians. So the Kremlin could go oh, look at look at our liberal oppositions, funded by. These sort of like um, the westernized, spoiled oligarchs. And, and sure enough, the guy who, who funded it then became the pseudo-liberal candidate at the uh, elections. Uh, he got a very respectful 14%, soaked up the liberal vote, and then promptly disappeared from the political scene. He kind of done his job. So it's a much, much subtler and much more kind of um, system than just like, you know, stupid old Soviets. Uh, rule to, to suppress dissent and thus created a really sort of like strong anti-communist movement.
0: So who's behind it? Who's thinking in such a, I don't know, a sophisticated smart way?
1: Well, I mean, look, it developed. You know We can look at the way it developed through the 90s. Actually, the first people who let it happen were Democrats. So, so in the mid-1990s, it looks as if uh, Yeltsin, uh, who was a more kind of pro-Western president, would lose the elections to the communists who'd really become social democrats by then. Um, and so all the oligarchs got together because they were really scared of this. Um, and in order to save democracy, they hired a sort of a new type of political consultant called uh, a political technologist, sort of a, a 21st century propagandist, to create sort of uh, sort of pseudo scare stories and help rig the votes, and help rig the election. And it's quite funny. It was a class of liberal political consultants who actually made this happen. Uh, and a lot of them regret it now. A lot of them say openly that was the moment when Russia lost it in '96. So in order to save democracy, we used undemocratic means. But with time, kind of one of this class of political consultants emerged as. Um, you know, as the most powerful one, a guy called Vladislav Surkov, um, who's very much you know, a zeitgeist kind of figure. He was a bohemian and a dissident, kind of dissident in Soviet times, studied theater, then became a PR guy, sponsors modern art festivals, writes postmodern novels, which are okay, about cynical PR men. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, kind of, he calls himself one of the authors of the system. I mean, he talks about it openly, and he ran it for a while around TV and political parties. But I wouldn't say it's one person. It's a very, you know, it's a big state. It's a very fluid, reactive state. Sokov came to symbolize it in many ways. Um, I don't think anyone has total control.
0: Not even Putin himself? Yeah,
1: but Putin is the arbiter of all the decisions. I mean, nobody's, like, the system isn't... Um, uh, it, it, it is a postmodern system that way. You know, it can sort of like work in various ways. And like somebody in the provinces can be running their own mini project or somebody in the oil and gas thing will be running their own mini project. It's quite flexible. Uh, it's not actually very di- rigid that way.
3: Uh, all right, we've 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 said the word postmodern a couple times here. Um, and you're, in your book, you say a postmodern dictatorship is one that uses language in the institutions of di- democratic capitalism for authoritarian ends. And... You kind of talk about how this model of Kremlin propaganda takes, kind of takes the West, digests it, and then perverts it. Uh, so, could you explain how how the Kremlin does this? How do they use the Western messages and, and twist them on television? And what and, and what exactly is do you mean by a postmodern dictatorship? Well, sure, So, so the key ideas of sort of post-modernity
1: are the idea of the, you know, what Baudrillard called the simulacra. Yeah, a thing which looks like something but actually isn't it itself, uh, and it's something quite different. Uh, simulacra is maybe the most overused word in Russian politics. All, all, the analysts use it. So we have pseudo-political parties, pseudo-independent media. It's all pseudo. It all looks free, but actually, once you get into it, it works in completely different ways. This was one of the great things of Kacharbenko Kizha, the uh, the great. Uh, Georgian reformer, maybe one of the most effective post-Soviet reformers. who was like, we live, and he's quote Bodrian quite a lot. He like, we live in a world where nothing is what it seems. I mean, the police do not are not actually police; they, they're involved in racketeering. Uh, the tax agency are not the tax agency. All the signs you see are something else. So that's what we mean. Uh, also, we mean by the loss, uh, the lack of any one coherent narrative, and many, 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 many little narratives, and the lack of a stable um, social. Uh, individuality and role. But just coming back to this idea of simulacra, because that's the most coherent one when we talk about policy. So take elections in Russia. Russia has, you know, elections with different political parties uh, running uh, against each other and competing. And, you know, there are debates on TV. And, and, and If you were to just tune into it, you would think, oh, my God, it looks just like America. However, everybody knows who's going to win a priori. Everyone knows that they will be rigged. And there's a great essay by Stephen Holmes about this. The New York University professor that uh, it's actually a ritual. It's actually a ritual where you go and pretend to sort of uh, uh, to take part in the serious vote. Everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. It's the the faking is quite transparent. The state is saying we are so powerful we can fake these results, and um, uh, you know the the whole point is for the state to show its power. So even though it's authoritarian power, so through the ritual of a democratic vote. What looks like a democratic vote, you're actually reinforcing an authoritarian model. So that's that's one I think very very good example of it, and that's sort of a uh, you know a fairly pointed one because elections is always what we sort of associate with uh, democracy.
0: So that's actually taken from the West in a way, right? I mean, that's uh, I mean, the Western idea of, and ideal of democracy. And you talk about how the U.S. is used foreign media is woven into the kremlin's version of the media
3: right you talk about larry king quite a bit in your book and his rt show yeah well
1: not quite a bit I, mean, I think larry king has two lines in my book but there are very important two lines
3: i, I apologize you talk about <laughs> larry king as an example in your book
1: well Larry, look so i mean here we're talking about rt which is larry king had a show on rt which is the kremlin's foreign uh, broadcaster it's not it's not it's not in russian it's in english spanish arabic other languages I think. So RT is very interesting again for the same reason. So RT when you switch it on looks just like CNN or the BBC. I mean down to the music you know it's like it's very very similar. Um, the presentation everything. So switch it on going oh look it's just another sort of like you know international TV news channel. And uh, its slogan is very interesting. The slogan is question more which is a really clever slogan because you know that's very much the Western ideal of what journalism should be all about. I don't know if you saw their advertising in Washington DC. Really nicely sort of drawn posters. Tony Blair preaching before the Iraq War, and you know below it says, "This is what you get as the Iraq War if you don't have a second opinion." And then Colin Powell uh, as well, um, which is you know, how can you possibly disagree with, with that with that idea? That's you know the essence of Western, uh, the Western ideal of journalism is to question more and question power and have a second opinion. But then RT use that ideal to kind of do something very, very interesting. They they sort of, well, basically they destroy, well, they destroy sort of the line between sort of information and disinformation. They, 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 they. Once you sort of get rid of the idea that there's any kind of objective truth out there, which is, you know, there probably isn't, uh, they kind of take that to its extreme by saying, well, then it's fine for us to do disinformation. Or they'll um, have experts who aren't, uh, who just literally just nutcases taken off the street a lot of the time, sort of a neo-Nazi uh, from Germany will suddenly be key German expert on uh, European affairs or somebody from Linda LaRouche's organization will suddenly be key American expert on world development because once you get rid of you know once you take the very noble idea of questioning more of undermining the sort of hegemonic truth and you take it to its absolute extreme you can basically say there's no difference between a Cambridge university professor and a freak um, and so they take that so it's strange they take a very very you know healthy idea and they take it to kind of like uh, a place where it's, it starts to undermine sort of its own uh, its, its its own ideals. So again, a little bit like election. You take elections and you push them to a place which is the opposite of their original meaning. So, so that's why RT is very interesting. And, and Larry King, God bless his soul and God bless his conscience, um, had a show on this. Um, and it was, I really liked the advert for it because it was, um, you know, it was Larry King going, come watch my new show on RT. And then it was like, all the words that we associate with good journalism, I don't know, um, you know, truth-seeking, um, uh, research, uh, you know, bravery, all these words sort of going very, 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 very fast across the screen. And just visually, it was, it was, it was uh, sort of taking all the clichés of Western journalism and sort of putting them them through this kind of uh, uh, fast-forward uh, effect, which, which in the end sort of makes them feel almost meaningless. You know, they just become just words. And, and it, was, it always seemed to be like an, a big f you towards Western journalism. It was saying like, we can take your cliches, and we can destroy them from inside. Um, I don't know if they meant that. But, you know, sometimes ad, an advert says something deeper than, than, than it's the people who created it and uh, intended it.
0: I, I have this feeling that RT, uh, or at least RT.com, used to be a little bit more subtle. Um, And the reason I say this is a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was an American, at least alleged American spy who was a fairly low-grade official in the uh, Moscow embassy uh, who was wearing, uh, at least according to the RTV footage, a bad wig when he was caught. I think that was Uh, true. Well, it was was absolutely fascinating, though, because, uh, of course, they broke the story. And I remember sitting in a newsroom, people wondering, "Oh, wow, who is this RT?" And I think it, at least at first it was kind of subtle, and people didn't really recognize it as Kremlin propaganda. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't I don't know when I watched I watched uh, RTV not very long ago. It was right before the Russians stepped in and started bombing in Syria. And they were talking about the U.S. bombing in Syria and on the television channel. One thing I I noticed is exactly what you were talking about. I mean, they did seem to have experts off the street and they spoke about when they were talking about the U.S. bombing of ISIS. They referred to it very specifically as bombing civilians in Syria. And I I don't know. Was it more subtle? I mean, was it always uh, sort of this level? I mean, they had some prominent anchors walk out a couple of years ago saying things had gone too far.
1: You know, it actually started as a soft PR project, quite classic soft PR project, just doing fluffy stuff about Russia. And then nobody wanted that. Uh, And they kind of changed in 2008 during the Georgian War. But they go through peaks and troughs, you know what I mean? My my sense is that maybe they've really decided to zero in on the kind of – on the viewer they feel isn't um, catered for in the U.S., which is – the kind of fringe left and fringe right viewer. Yeah. Um, I think before maybe they were going for a slightly more maybe pbs sort of viewer. So I don't know, but listen, they occasionally do really good stories. I mean, they, they have a couple of, you know, it's, 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 it's all mixed in. This is the whole point. You do a good one, then you do a crazy one. You do a good one, then you do a crazy one. Um, so, so even now, you could switch it on and see a perfectly good story. So um, I, I, my sense is that after Crimea, it got really, really, uh, really, really crass during the war in Ukraine, that's when they were told off by Ofkov, the British regulator. And like in the US, we have regulators in the UK, and they've been told off, I don't know, four or five times, which is, you know, a lot for just, you know, telling lies, basically. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I think, it, it, look, it's a tool of Russian foreign policy. So if the foreign policy is very sharp at the moment, at that moment, they'll really go for it. If the foreign policy is being friendly with the US, maybe they'll change their approach over the next couple of months, because now Russia and the US are bosom buddies again.
3: You, you actually worked in Russian TV. You were a TV producer. How overt is the control from your bosses? Like, when you wanted to tell a story that they didn't necessarily want to tell, would they just, would they, like, how did, how did that work? How did they kind of steer the ship?
1: Well, listen, I worked for an entertainment channel. Because mm-hmm. when I arrived, when I was working with Russian channels, which is 2006 to 2010, it was already kind of dodgy to work for a news channels. So I was working for, you know, my, my background is in entertainment uh, so I worked for a channel which brought the sitcom to Russia and brought stand-up comedy to Russia and brought some reality shows to Russia and all that kind of stuff. There was very... I mean, they are actually, because they're an entertainment channel, they could do really risque stuff in their comedy. I mean, they did... Um, uh, they did a. a, a the Russian version of a British sketch show called Little Britain, where they could do really risque stuff without ever naming names. I mean, there would be stuff about, you know, there was a regular sketch about Russia's most corrupt, uh, Russia's only uncorrupt traffic cop. Um, and it's like, you know, he refuses to take any bribes and like he lives in Penury and his wife is always, he must become corrupt like everyone else. <laughs> uh, and there was a sketch about uh, a hospital where like, you know, there's a room where you, take, you pay a bribe and, uh, you know, you get this incredible sort of like uh, sort of you get a, a, incredible healthcare and prostitutes and everything, and then next door is the the normal one where you know, just the sort of a national health uh, thing and the people yeah. just dying horribly.
0: Well, I I, I got to say though, that speaking as an American here, um, I don't know about the NHS. That is actually literally the case.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. no. I mean, I think <laughs> uh, we, we know the whole world knows about America's uh, healthcare due to due, due to the. Um, Excellent, objective, and um, uh, analytical reports from Michael Moore. Um, but, um <laughs> uh, but, but the difference in Russia is you, you, you just give a bribe to the doctor; you just put it in his pocket. You don't, you don't pay it to an institution. It's not. You know, they haven't got to the point where, ca- where corruption becomes market capitalism. It's just corruption, still. Mm-hmm. But maybe they'll mature into that. Actually, one of the big arguments for fighting corruption is just why don't you just institutionalise it? You know, if, if, if just, just make it exactly have it like in the US, have it done officially but um uh so anyway so actually being an entertainment channel they could do a lot of uh, a lot of really risque stuff but i i also worked in their documentary department and i one of the things they wanted to do was stories about teens because it was kind of youth oriented and when i started doing stories about teens i just found a lot of the stories had a political edge because you know it was about teens being beaten up by the cops which is a real problem teens you know being sent to the army as national service in ukraine and and you know they, they, there's a terrible problem with hazing in Russia, like really bad. I mean, a lot of suiciders Story about suicides among conscripts. Um, <clears throat> and these shows rated well because they were about people's lives and people enjoyed them and young kids enjoyed them. But suddenly that that made it political. And when I pitched the next one, they were like, mm, go and do one about footballers' wives. You know, so it's it's everyone kind of decides for themselves and everyone senses where the lines are. Um, and, and it's much more a case of self-censorship in that sense rather than anything else. People just instinctively know that they've gone too far.
3: You were just talking about the, the compulsory or the, the military service. That was another really interesting part of your book. You wrote, it could be said that if a year in the army is the overt process that molds young Russians, a far more powerful bond with the system is created by the rituals of avoiding military service. Uh, And I wanted to see if you would speak to like, explain to us what those rituals of avoidance are and how they shape those people's relationship with the state?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, I always find this fascinating as well. It's a great question. Um, So, you know, compulsory national military service is one of the, you know, basic ways that many states build loyalty and identity. So Israel, clearly, probably the most obvious example of a state that's, you know, people really become Israeli when they're in the army. So Russia has compulsory national service. Certainly in Soviet times, going through the army was a big, big deal and a big part of you... Really, you know, in a, in a sense, being broken by the state. you know, that's where you're kind of broken in and humiliated a lot and you became a good Soviet citizen. Nowadays, there's still compulsory national service, but everyone who can gets out of it. But some people, if you're studying, you know, if you're a student at a university, that's one way of getting out. Um, and actually, there's all these sort of, again, there's, some of, there's all these pseudo sort of higher educational institutions that get fund- founded that you just pay some money and say you're studying there and that gets you off. But not everyone can. You know, that's a lot of money. You know, imagine like just buying a college degree. It's, it's going to be pretty expensive. So a lot of people can't afford that. So what do they have to do? They have to pretend. They have to get like a a letter from a hospital saying that they they're physically unfit. You know, that they you know, they've got asthma or diabetes or whatever. And um, that basically involves the, both the young person and their parent. Um, essentially uh, kind of being sucked into a world of corruption, if, even if they never wanted to be corrupt. Because you firstly, you've got to find a doctor who's going to give you this false uh, piece of paper. Um, you've got to find it. You've got to pay him money. Then it's not, I mean, this is why Russia is so much fun. The doctor won't just give it to you. You still have to come into hospital and spend a week there pretending to be really ill so already a young person of 18 is already learning how to sort of like to survive in a society he's going to fake it uh a bit like later when he grows up he's going to pretend to vote and everybody knows that they're pretending but everyone kind of plays along because this is the way societies are sort of formed over, over, over a long period of time so you lie there pretending to be ill then uh you get out and you still have to go to uh the military place where they they will test you again you give them the letter They'll test you again, but, you know, they they go along with it as well. You usually have to give another bribe there. And so, you know, to get out of military service, you've gone through this whole kind of uh, um, uh, sort of labyrinth of faking it and bribery and corruption, which actually makes you the ideal citizen of contemporary Russia, because... Uh, all your life, you're going to be sort of, you know, faking your voting in elections, uh, faking your taxes. You know, you're part of this game, but where you're actually very dependent on the state because once you've faked it, firstly psychologically you really, you know, you're a little bit like them. Uh, Corruption always a great way, It always corrupts the person who's, who's, you know, at the bottom of it, giving the bribe as well as the person demanding it. Um, uh, and and you kind of learn to think it's normal. You know, if you, if, if you're already faking it from the age of 18 then you, you know, it's no big deal to then kind of like go and pretend that uh, you're you know, voting in a real election or pretend you're paying the taxes when
0: you're not. We had a guest uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Mark Gagliotti, who was talking about the fact that Russian military conscription is only for one year and that, in fact, it's very, very hard to train anyone and then turn them into good soldiers. And he said, basically, you have like three months of someone you can actually use on a battlefield uh, before they're gone, so I guess what you're saying would actually almost explain that.
1: It's about breaking people in. Um, Mark is, is the world's biggest expert on the Russian military. I mean I, I, uh, so so I actually have no idea what happened to the battlefield. Um, but it would it definitely explain that it's much more about breaking people in. but the idea is um uh, very much to you know socialize people, make them part of, you know make them part of the states, rather than make them into great soldiers.
3: All right, Peter. What do you see? Are the, the what are the weaknesses of this of this system that you've described? And are the cracks kind of showing?
1: The weakness is, is that it's got nothing to do with reality. You know, it's a pseudo. Everything is fake. You know, uh, uh, there's, there's, Putin is like this toriador You know, mm-hmm. uh, this bullfighter with this red cape of corruption and propaganda that through which he avoids reality. Um, and that's what everyone in Russia says. like, when will reality catch up with Russia? Because this like world of you know, truth is actually quite a useful thing. You know, there, there's a reason democracies allegedly try to stick to, you know, a real process. It makes us, you know, face up to the problems in the country. Elections make us sort of like checks, uh, checks how well your administrations actually work, and so on and so forth. And, and so, a system based on pretense and um, fakery at one point should hit the iceberg of reality. I'm really mixing my metaphors here. Every time Putin comes near reality, he finds a way out there so far. So, you know, in 2012, there were mass protests calling for real democracy, and you know, a real modernization plan. And he looked in trouble. And he invented a fake war. He invented fake fascists in Ukraine. And, you know, it's kind of complete and utter illusion. But it was efficient to get his ratings back up. Now, um, you know, that's kind of expanded into the war with ISIS. I mean, ISIS, of course, is a very real enemy. It does need to be dealt with. Uh, but again, he's found a new story, a new narrative that distracts from from the sad reality of the way Russian economy and society is going. There is no f- domestic policy anymore on Russian TV. I did I worked on an EU project recently about you know r- Russian TV and 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 we did like a, a an analysis of um, a content analysis of of, of r- the news and stories on Russian news and current affairs. And there's hardly anything about social problems it's all when we were doing it it was ukraine it was all you know the conspiracy the global conspiracy against russia a civil war in ukraine the whole world is going to you know going to hell only putin can save it it's like this movie um about a world disintegrating into chaos with putin as a sort of batman type hero to save it not a mention of sort of like you know hospitals or anything like that um so um, every time we think he's going to hit reality, he thinks of something bigger and better. And there's still a lot of big stories that he can think of. Um, he can still do a big missile crisis somewhere. There was the Arctic War, which they were playing with. So they can go on and on and on, um, which when he runs out of stories, but he seemed, he's, he's like Shah of the Arabian Nights, you know, thinks of another story. As soon as you know we think he's going to get executed, no, he pulls another one out of the hat. Uh, which is very much based on TV, which comes back to our first thing. You know, TV is obviously sort of the the uh, you know satanic machine that cooks up all these new stories. They don't need to be that related to reality. I mean, with ISIS, they are related to reality. In Ukraine, it was you know hallucinated a war into reality. So they just need two good stories. Um, so there you nice. go. He's like a huge TV producer, a huge entertainment TV producer. Like like I was a tiny entertainment TV producer in Russia. He's like the great entertainment TV producer.
0: Well, that sounds like. Uh... I mean, a terrific point to stop. I don't think we're going to get much better than that. Thank you very, very much, Peter, for joining us. Oh, and let me mention the name of the book again. Again, I think the, the title's fantastic. The book is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So check it out.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt co-hosts and wrangles the guests and generally keeps things chugging. The show is produced by me, Bethel Habde. If you like War College and want to support us, the best way is to go into iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at war underscore college. You can pitch ideas for future shows there. We'll be back in two weeks. Jason and Matt end the year with an interview with none other than Dan Carlin, host of the podcast Hardcore History and Common Sense. Until then.